Good morning. Um, it's been a very eventful summer for our family, for all of us. We've been on holidays and we've done all sorts of things and all sorts of things have been going on in our own household. Um, as you probably, many of you will know, Gerald collapsed and actually died and came back to life again. And uh, I was hoping that he'd had some encounter with, you know, the angel Gabriel at the very worst or with Jesus or we could write the book and make the film and <laughs> everything else. But no, sadly, that did not happen. But thank God. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. My darling husband is here, and Jesus has prevailed. So um, it's definitely been a roller coaster of a summer uh, in all sorts of ways. And not least of all, one of the ways where it's been a roller coaster is I've been asking God over the summer, Lord, um, where do you want to take the church? What do you want to do in the church next? Um, how do you want to build uh, Northgate Church? And what God said has really shocked me in many ways. And he said, Lord, uh, Lord, <laughs> Lynn, Lynn, um, I don't want you to build the church. And I was really, really, are you sure? <laughs> um, and he said, I'm not about building the church. I'm about making disciples. And there is actually a world of difference between those two propositions. And he asked me to look at Jesus when Jesus came to the earth and his three years of ministry. And as I looked again and thought about the Gospels, I thought there is nowhere that Jesus was saying, right, gather around 12 people now, we're gonna have a strategy meeting. We need to build a church in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, and we'll have one in the north in Galilee, and from there we can break into Syria and Lebanon and Iran, it wasn't called Iran then, can't remember what it was called, and so on. But he did not come with a church strategy. In fact, as you read the Gospels, Jesus hardly talks about the church at all, other than to say that he will build the church. But what he does talk about over and over and over again is repent and become a follower of me. The church is not at the center of Jesus' strategy. He himself is at the center of his strategy. And, you know, when, on his final commission, when he's died, and uh, just before he goes back to heaven, his commission to the disciples is not, right, guys, we've had a three-year training course. Now you go and build the church. What is his commission to the disciples? His commission is to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey 
everything that I have commanded you. He does not say, go and, make dis- uh, go and build churches, ever. He commands us, his people, to make disciples so that the church is not at the centre of our lives, but Jesus Christ is at the centre of our lives. Right, where are we? Could we move on with the slides? Um, okay, could we just go on to the... the yeah, those. Sorry, I got my slides all in a muddle. Um, so, the church, generally, worldwide, not, not just Northgate Church, but the church does understand this proposition that we need to make disciples. And I want to look at how does the church make disciples? And on the whole, the church asks for three things. So this is a funnel and the church, so we have outreach as many people as possible into that funnel. So we have outreach meetings and we reach out to people, we want to see them saved and they come into the top of the funnel which is the church. And we ask people as they're dis- in their discipleship to attend church meetings. And that in those church meetings, we try to connect them with other people into small groups. And we also try to get them serving, to get them exercising spiritual gifts and to to work, if you like, within the church. And we use various strategies for this. We do um, more Bible teaching, more prayer meetings, focus on spiritual gifts, in-depth training on the gospel of grace, the renewal of our minds, ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, And we often have all these different programs to develop people as disciples of Jesus. But our main way is to bring them into the church to attend, to connect, and to serve. But I want to go back to those three years when Jesus was on the earth. Because when he was on the earth, that setting up what he did. As I've just said, he did not go around setting up church buildings and drawing as many people as he could into them. That was not his strategy for discipleship. So if we could have the next. Jesus' strategy for making disciples on the earth was very, very different. He did not gather a thousand people and build a megachurch in Jerusalem. What he did was he chose 12. And over those three years, he poured himself into those 12. And out of that 12, he focused particularly on three. They got a bit more than the others. And up beyond that 12, there was the 70. And he did some 100, training 
with the 70. And then beyond that, there was the 500. And then beyond that, without doubt, there were meetings. You know, there was the feeding of the 5,000. There was the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus met with big groups of people. But he did not set up big organizations. He did not set up big institutions. Rather, he invested everything that he had into three, 12, 70, 500 to some extent. And actually, as his time, if you read the Gospels and sort of look at the timescales and things, as his time was coming to an end, he actually withdrew more from the, the big crowds and he spent more time with the 12. And as the end drew, he spent more and more time speaking with them, being with them, praying with them. It was his biggest investment was in 12. It wasn't in setting up a mega church of thousands. And I, I just want to ask you, what do we think he was doing with the 12? Somehow, so I have to say what I'm telling you, what God has shown me, it has shocked me because I was running on the other model. And God has been, you know, he's, he's, I'm on this journey that we're all going to be on. But what do you think? What do I think he was doing with the 12? Were we Monday to Friday, do you think they were with Jesus having in-depth lessons on Leviticus? We've got a fisherman. We've got a tax collector. We haven't got anybody that's very intellectual amongst that lot, or perhaps one. Do you think they'd have hung around for the in-depth program on Leviticus? To be sure, he was showing them miracles and the kingdom of God and how to go about things, but he wasn't doing just in-depth theology. He wasn't just doing in-depth Bible study. And it was the disciples themselves. He didn't even initially teach them about prayer or about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't come at that point. It was the disciples that came to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And up until that point, he hadn't taught them these spiritual disciplines that the church teaches so readily as discipleship. So I think that what Jesus was doing in those three years was he was developing their interior life, that inner life within them. So you get Peter chopping off somebody's ear. You get the sons of thunder, James and John. Oh, Lord, let's call down thunder on that, on that village. Let's burn everyone alive because they're no good. You get the boys, James and John again, fighting because, well, they just want to be the number one, thank you, and the others also want the number one slot. The whole time, Jesus is dealing with who they are as people. 
And he is remolding them and remaking them so that when he has gone, their interior life will be able to carry the external work that he has for them. So if you think about Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, he had to withstand enormous pressure. He had to withstand the pressure of the expectations of his family. He had to withstand the pressure of the expectations of his village because Jesus did not live when he came to his ministry as a good Jewish boy. He did all the things he shouldn't have done. He had to withstand the expectations of the Pharisees who wanted Jesus to fit into their mold of what Christian life or religious life should look like. He had to withstand the pressure of the expectation of God's people, the Jews, because they were looking for a king and they wanted him to be a king to get rid of the Romans and to rule them as an independent state. There was massive pressure on Jesus' life to meet the expectations of other people. And time after time after time, that pressure came in the form of wanting to kill him. We are not talking about small, they don't like me. They were out to kill him. Now, in this last 15 months, Gerald and I have experienced some pressure. But this is pressure like nothing we've ever experienced. And yet Jesus, because his interior life with the Father was so rock solid, he could resist the external pressure and he was able to only do what his father said and did. And in those three years, I would like to put it to you that this is what he did with the disciples. He was working with them. He was working on their ambitions, on their desires, on their flesh, on their, uh, on their goals in life, on their attitudes, so that they became inside like him and they were prepared for the work which he had prepared for them after he had left. And so Jesus was saying to me, when I was praying about Northgate Church, where shall we go from here, Lord God? Jesus was saying, Lynn, I want you, but... Wasn't he wanted me? He wants to prepare all of us because he does have work for us to do. That's why he saved the church. In all our troubles, God saved us because he has plans and purposes for this church and for this company of people. But where he wants to begin is not sending us out to do great works. He wants to begin in the interior of our lives. And if he had just said, go and make disciples, Lynn, I want you to facilitate this in, in Northgate, I'm sorry to say, I would into the word, perhaps we should, right, well, we better do some more Bible study. We better get into the word. Perhaps we should teach on renewing our minds. Perhaps we should pray more. Let me ring Jesse and Angela. Let's organize some prayer meetings. But actually, that isn't what he wants. 
And Jesus showed me, do we have the next slide? Where's, where's my circle of... Yeah. Success. Um, this, this is what Jesus was teaching me. That actually, we as people are made up of many different components. There are five components that I could think of. You could maybe think of some more. But you as a person... You're made in the image of God. And so, first of all, we have a spiritual component because we are born again. We are spiritual beings. We also have a physical body. We are social beings. We have relationships with each other. We have minds. We think. But we also have emotions. And in my understanding, all of the discipleship that I've been through in my life, it has all fed into that component of my spiritual, the spiritual part of my life. I have never had, or maybe just a couple of times, I've never had a sermon that teaches me how to deal with my anger or how to deal with my sadness, or my frustration, or any number of other things. But Jesus wants to be Lord of every area of our life. He wants to be Lord of my overeating sometimes when I eat too much cake or whatever, or my lack of exercise. He wants to be Lord of my physical body. He wants to be Lord of my friendships, my relationships. He wants to be Lord, certainly, of my spiritual life. He wants to be Lord of my thought life. But he also wants to be Lord of my emotional life. And I just want to say this. Well, I think this is okay, but it is entirely it in others. It's this myself. I am this to some extent. And I have seen it in others. It's, it's sometimes easier to see in others. It is entirely possible to be very, very knowledgeable on the spiritual level because we have spent years in church and we know a lot about the Bible. We know a lot about God. It's, and we pray and we, are, we love God. It's entirely possible to be very knowledgeable in the spiritual realm and yet very young and undeveloped in the emotional realm. Now Jesus is saying he wants to work in all of these areas of our life. And I thought, well, my goodness, Lord, where do we begin? I'm not an expert. And I feel God has, has given us some material um, to work through, which is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And so what I feel God wants us to do is, over these next few weeks, he wants us um, to begin to tap into some of these areas and to allow him to work deeply within us. So the first thing we're going to look at is the problem. Often we have this emotionally 
unhealthy spirituality. And our life can be like an iceberg. All of our lives are an iceberg. And an iceberg, the top 10% shows above the water. And that's like our Christian life, you know. We come to church, we smile, people say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. We're nice people. And we sing the songs, and like Lindsay was saying, we don't smoke cigarettes, we, do, we don't swear, we don't, we don't bring our addictions to church. You know, nobody comes with... Um, oh, I don't know, heroin or, uh, you know, alcohol or any of that stuff. When we come here, we look good. And that's like the top 10% of our lives. But in the bottom 90% of our lives, like when we go home or um, when something goes wrong, well, then suddenly, guess what? You know, somebody cuts in in front of you on the way home and a stream of swear words comes out of our mouths or... You know, suddenly the top 10% doesn't look so good anymore and the 90% leaks into our being. So this is the first thing that we will look at, the problem. The second thing is we're going to look at that in order to grow emotionally, we have to know ourselves in order to know God. And in our society, it is very, very common to live life pretending to be someone else. So you see it all the time. You see politicians, you know, trying to look really good. Boris Johnson, we're not going to talk politics here, but, you know, but suddenly that whole thing came out about the argument with his girlfriend. You know, he, he looks good in the House of Commons, and then suddenly something in his own house isn't looking quite so good, and... You know, anyway, um, magazine editors do it. You know, when they take photographs of beautiful models and they airbrush them to make them look more beautiful than they are in reality. Um, pupils do it. Young people do it. When they are at school, they want to hang with the crowd. They don't want to stick out or be different. So they rearrange themselves to fit in with the crowd. People do it. You know, it makes us smile sometimes, but we've all done it. You know, when you're young and you're trying to get boyfriends and girlfriends, and, you know, we went to a wedding just not very long ago, and there were the, you know, the 20-somethings swaggering. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, we're, we're inside. Lights on everywhere, but they've got their shades on. You know, all swaggering because they're all trying to look cool and impress the beautiful girls that were there. We've all done it. We try to fit in. And then also with, with our lives, you know, often we live our lives trying to be what someone else wants us to be. You know, I lived years trying to be what I thought would please my father because I loved him. But you can spend years trying to be what you think other people want you to be. I was always really blessed by Sheila. You know, when she first came into leadership, she never tried to be what everybody else expected her to be. And I've admired her always for that. But often, in many, many ways, we live our lives trying to be. And so the world is robbed of who the real me is, or the real you. Um, in order to 
have this interior transformed. God requires us to go back in order to go forward. So we need to understand what in our family history has shaped us and molded us. Um, you could hear a 30-minute sermon on marriage, but actually the way you live is how your parents modelled marriage for the 18 years you were growing up. Um, or we, we know that perhaps you know, we shouldn't get angry and yell at people if we're uh, in conflict with them, but we handle conflict the way our culture tells us we should handle, or the way our parents modelled it to us. And every family has got baggage. Every family lives imperfectly. So we've all had things modelled to us which are ungodly. But in order to bring change, you have to recognise what it is that needs changing and where it comes from. Even small things, like when we got married, how Gerald's family did Christmas was very different to how my family did Christmas. But until I got married, I thought everyone did Christmas the way I did it. So you have to understand where do you need to change before you can bring change. Um, God wants us to learn how to journey through the wall. As we grow, as we live, as we grow as Christians, every single one of us will hit a wall. And often for Christians, when we hit a wall, we bounce off. I was reading some survey, and it said that when Christians hit walls, 85% of them bounce off and never get through the wall. But the wall, if we will open that up to Jesus, will shape us and will come through the wall the other side, different to how we were before the wall. So that wall could be a number of things. It could be a divorce. It could be betrayal. It could be a bad church experience. Plenty of those around. The death of a loved one. We could fall into sin. You know, Peter really mucked up, denied Jesus three times. That was a wall for him. He was ashamed. He thought, this is game over. How can I have a ministry after this? And he could have given up at that point and bottled out. But by the grace of God, he pressed through that wall. Well, what's the betting that from that day onwards, he was a different man? He wasn't so arrogant after that, wasn't so rash, wasn't so quick to say the wrong thing. We have walls, and Jesus wants to teach us how to get through these walls. The next one is a little bit like it. It's about enlarging ourselves through grief and loss. In life, we lose many, many things. Our children grow up and leave home. That's a loss. We lose health. We lose a job. We lose power and influence, perhaps, if we, as we get older. We lose people. And there are things, too, that we grieve over. But Jesus has a way for us to manage our emotions 
so that they become opportunities for life and development um, and not things to crush us and bring us down. The sixth thing we want to do is look at rhythms of silence and Sabbath. In order to, I was so blessed talking to um, Lawrence this morning, in order to uh, allow God to penetrate our innermost being, we have to develop times of drawing aside just to be silent before God and to allow him to speak to our innermost being. In our busy, busy, busy society, we do not do that. We rush, we're busy, we're full of activity, and we pay the cost for it. We're fragmented and not centered. We're all over the place, we're scattered. And Jesus wants to teach us how to draw aside to be with him and how to have Sabbath rest. It was that, do you remember I spoke on Sabbath rest? It was that that was the start of all of this. Jesus speaking to me about Sabbath rest. That was the beginning of the shockwaves. Finally, two more things. Uh, Jesus wants us to become emotionally whole. So we want to have a look at how do we do that. And he also wants us finally to develop a rule of life for ourselves. So God wants us to develop our own framework for walking with him. What works for Trevor will not work for me. What works for Pat will not work for Joe. And each of us are different. So Jesus wants to help us develop our own framework so that if we were like the church in Jerusalem, remember after Jesus had died and the church prospers for 70-odd years, and then persecution came. And everyone in Jerusalem was scattered all over the place. But the people had their own framework within them. So all that happened was they took Jesus with them. They didn't. The church didn't die and was no more. And that's because each person has got their own framework of relating to Jesus. So this is the direction I think God wants to take us over these next few weeks. Will there be challenges? Undoubtedly. This is not easy stuff. Will it be uncomfortable at times? Yes. Will it be worth it? Yes, 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 yes. I believe God is inviting us at this time to roll up our sleeves. It's like since all of our troubles, we've had a grace period of the last 15 months where Jesus has been dealing with things and sorting things out and healing things. And now we are the faithful remnant. He has said that over and over again. And I believe Jesus is saying to us, faithful remnant We've dealt with all the other stuff. Now I want to deal with us. I include myself in this. I know I'm in it. I want to develop each of us individually so that that iceberg isn't a 10% one way and 90% another way, but so that it is 100% the way Jesus has destined it to be.
Are you up for it? Amen. Amen. Amen.